This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, my name is Kate McDonald. I'm the historian of modern Japan here in the Department of History at University of California, Santa Barbara. And I'm super excited to be here today to share with you my research on human power. So I've titled my talk today, Footwork, Making Sense of Human Power in the Age of the Machine. And before we get going, let me give you um, two points to keep track of. Um, in order to make sense of human power in the age of the machine, we need to have two tools. One, we need to be able to see um, conflicts in the transport industry, particularly conflicts that revolve around labor, as conflicts of values rather than just conflicts between technologies or conflicts between human power and machine power. And the second part of this is we need to have a new understanding of what innovation in the history of transport technology looks like. So these are two things we're going to be talking about as we go through and try to make sense of human power. Here's where we're going to start, though. We're going to start with an incident called the parcel delivery crisis in Japan. And we're going to talk a lot about Japan, primarily because that's my specialty, but I think you'll be able to see that the story I'm telling has global resonance. So here we go. This is a parcel delivery worker. He works for an organization called Yamato Transport. They have a famous black cat logo here.、Um, you see, he's running, probably because the bosses are taking photos. But also because he has a lot of packages to deliver. You can see here on this chart that over the last 10 years, the number of parcels being delivered in Japan has skyrocketed. So, from about a little bit around 3 billion packages in 2009 to we're up to 4.3 billion packages in 2018. Right around 2016, parcel delivery workers started to snap. Now, there were a number of incidents that made the news.、Um, one of the most memorable ones was a cell phone video that went viral. Now, the context is that this is a driver, a delivery driver for a company called Sagawa Express, and most likely he brought all these packages down the staircase and into the apartment building so that he could deliver them, and customers weren't home. And now he's having to take them all the way back out again,、um, put them back on his cart, and get them back on his truck, and he'll have to come back and deliver them again later. He's not having a great day. Now, the explanation that came up, like the, the one that people coalesced around to explain this parcel delivery crisis, was a labor shortage that was putting too much pressure on Japan's parcel delivery workers at a time when volumes were increasing dramatically. So, here is one way we can illustrate the,、um, the labor shortage in Japan.、Um, a number that people use commonly to describe it is called the jobs to applicants ratio. So, you can see here in 2019, the jobs to applicants ratio across all industries in Japan was 1.60. So, that means there were roughly 160 job postings for every 100 applicants. And even through the economic slowdown that's come with the coronavirus pandemic,、um, even in May 2020, the jobs to applicants ratio was still 1.20, so 120 jobs for every 100 applicants. In truck driving work, which includes parcel delivery, the numbers are much, much worse. So in May 2020, we have a ratio of 2.08. That's 208 jobs for every 100 applicants. So, you can see how just from these numbers, there are 
um, there are not enough people working in this industry to sustain it, particularly in a moment when um, many more people are shopping online than before. And then when you actually look at how um, the people who are working in that industry, how their work life um, is organized, like how the, you know, the number of hours they're working, the picture gets even worse. So in road-based cargo transport, this includes parcel delivery workers, um, workers are working on average 2,263 hours per year. That number doesn't mean a whole lot on its own, but if you look at transport and mail workers, generally speaking, um, they're working 200 hours less than road-based cargo transport workers. And in fact, um, road-based cargo transport workers are working on the range of 400 to 500 more hours per year than the average worker in Japanese industry. Of those hours, and here's another really important number, 380 of them are non-scheduled. And so this is a technical term that means hours, early morning hours, um, unexpected late evening overtime, and most onerously, finding that you have to work on the day that you thought you were going to get off. Right? So 380 non-scheduled work hours per year translates to something around six to eight hours of unscheduled work per week. It's a whole extra day. So you can see why parcel delivery workers might have been getting a little bit tired and might have been struggling <laughs> to deal with package volumes and re-deliveries. At the same time, what I want to suggest today is that there is actually a bigger story happening here than just the labor shortage in Japan. And that is that we are fighting an intense, or there's an intense conflict of values that is being fought on the bodies of transport workers. And this is a conflict between values that we associate with the consumer economy. So things like efficiency, convenience, cost or time savings, right? Things that make it easier to buy stuff and cheaper to buy stuff. These values are in conflict with values that we might think of as the humanity of laborers. Things like sustainable livelihood, bodily autonomy, and protection from monopoly. Now, this last one hasn't been such an issue in parcel delivery, but historically it has been something that transport workers talk about a lot. So we, if we look for evidence about this being a conflict in values, we can actually find some really interesting, some really interesting stories. Um, the one that I'll share with you is from a webcomic called Yukita's Four-Panel Home Parcel Delivery, and it's drawn by Yukita Kosuke. And in May 2020, he drew one called The Thing I Want Now, Ima Hoshimono. And so I'll walk, you, I'll walk you through it here. A delivery subcontractor in Tokyo carrying packages from a big box electronic store to deliver to homes. Because the actual stores are closed, the demand for consumer electronics via home delivery has skyrocketed. And here's our driver, and he says, crap, no vacations this month either. On the one hand, the work is exhausting, and here he is running. They said it was okay to deliver until any time tonight. Subtext being, it's very late at night now. On the other hand, it seems like our wages will go up. They're subcontracted parcel delivery workers, which means they get paid by the parcel. So an increase in volume means an increase in wages. And here the manager is celebrating the highest profit ever. Everyone, you are amazing. And the manager continues to exhort the delivery drivers. Now is the do or die moment. Everyone, let's keep at it. But the delivery driver says, this is impossible. 
More than wages, I just want a break. Even with the wage increases, it seems like everyone wants to quit. So we have here two ways of thinking about the parcel delivery crisis. One is as the product of a labor shortage that is you know, particular to this time and place. But the other bigger issue is that what we're seeing here is a conflict of values between values associated with consumer economy and values that support the um, humanity of labor. So we're going to come back to this idea of conflict of values. But now I want to move to talk um, about the second tool that we need to make sense of human power in the age of the machine. And that is, we need to rethink our history of innovation, especially when it comes to transport technology. You've probably noticed, or if you think about it for a second, you will notice that values associated with consumer economy dominate our public discourse and our historical common sense. And one of the reasons for that is because historians, and myself included, we have told the story, told the history of the modern world as a story of increasing efficiency made possible by changes, by innovations in transport technology, primarily mechanization, um, later efficiency updates, and then automation, right? So we've told a story of human progress as a story of efficiency. And I'm gonna give you some examples of that. So when American travelers first went to Japan, a lot of them wrote about wanting to get a ride on a rickshaw before the railroad took the rickshaw out. Right? They saw the rickshaw as a sign of old Japan that was about to disappear. So here is um, a photograph that was made by Frank Brinkley um, in 1898, featuring three rickshaws and their rickshaw pullers and women riding the rickshaws on um, the Tokaido Road, which was a famous, a famous road. And I've paired it here with a quote from Eliza Skidmore, um, who wrote a very famous travelogue called Jin Nikisha Days in Japan, or Rickshaw Days in Japan, where she says, which sort of states their purpose, right? Before the Iron Horse had cleared all the picturesqueness from the region, three of us made the Jin Nikisha journey down the Tokaido Road. Right, so the idea here is that the railroad is gonna push the rickshaw out. We're gonna have a move to a new era that's defined by a new transportation technology. When American travelers went to Japan and started telling these stories, they actually joined with a, a rich, they joined into a rich discourse of imperial travelers going to colonize places and talking about how things like the railroad symbolized modernity and civilization and places that didn't have railroads were uncivilized. So here's an example from the British Empire. This is George Otto Trevelyan um, writing in an essay about his trip um, to India and he says, Stroll 100 yards away from the railway embankment and all symptoms of civilization have vanished. So he's using the railroad to mark out a particular place as being civilized territory and beyond that, uncivilized, right? And part of that is also a sense of historical change, right? Social change that comes with the railroad. Japanese travelers also joined in this parade. So when under the Japanese empire, um, travelers to Korea and Manchuria also used the same discourse. So here's an example from Tayama Katai, who's one of the most famous Japanese novelists of the early 20th century. And he went on a trip to Korea, which was under Japanese rule at that time, in Manchuria. And in his narrative, he constructs an image, a scene in which he's riding on the railroad, looking out the window at a Korean person standing still. And the story here 
is that Japan, the Japanese Empire, is moving forward, moving quickly, moving into the modern era with railroads, and Koreans have decided not to move along with it, right? This is very pejorative discourse, and it becomes part of the logic for why Japan should colonize Korea, right? This becomes part of imperial discourse. It's not just imperialists who use this rhetoric, though, and I think this is a really important point um, to keep in mind. This is not just a discourse that we, use in, that we used in the past when people weren't so nice. We actually still use it today. We use it to describe what makes the modern world modern in, um, when compared to previous eras, right? So here's one example um, from David Harvey's very famous book, The Condition of Postmodernity. And he, he, tell, he says, and I think we all have heard this in some, um, in some fashion, that what defines the experience of modernity is the experience of time-space compression, the idea that the world is smaller and life is faster than ever before. So the way he visualizes this is with a shrinking map, a shrinking image of the globe. Um, in, in the first, the top image, this is how big the world was when you had horse-drawn coaches and sailing ships. Then we get a little smaller with steam locomotives and steamships. Then we get a little smaller with propeller aircraft. And finally, jet passenger aircraft in the 1960s makes the world teeny tiny. Right? So changes in transportation technology and specifically mechanization, right? new, motive, new sources of motive power um, mark historical progress in this image. And as mechanization becomes a way of thinking about the future, right, mechanization and automation, we get, the, we get the counterpart, which is that human power becomes a shorthand for the past. I don't even think I need to explain this, right? Fred Flintstone, the reason why we know Fred Flintstone is in the past, it's not just the dinosaurs, he has to drive his car with his feet, right? So here's human power just giving us the visual cue that we're talking about the past. Now, in some cases, the political content of this discourse is very obvious, right? So when you look at it in the context of imperialism and colonialism, it's just really, scream, it screams out at you. So here's another very famous example. This is um, a painting called American Progress by a man named John Gast. He painted it in 1872. And it is the, the um, visualization of American manifest destiny ideology. Right? The idea that it was America's divine destiny to colonize all the way to the western end of the North American continent, and that the railroad would be the divine instrument to do that. So we have Columbia here. She's holding a book. It says school book. Um, and the whole scene is moving from east, where the sunshine is, to the west, where it's dark. And you can see that we're also moving um, from steam power. We have trains to horsepower, and then we get to the indigenous peoples who are pictured here, and they're on foot, right? So there's also a story here of the train um, bringing the future, right? Bringing the present and then the future to the West. So I think we can sort of see that for, it, for um, the political message that it is justifying, justifying colonization of the Western half of the continent. Um, it's a little bit less obvious, but I think it's still actually very present um, in images like this. So this is gonna, I'm gonna show you a little clip that Amazon made advertising its new drone technology, the Amazon Scout.
that song may be stuck in your head all day long. My apologies. It's very catchy though. So what we have here is a story of the scout, this drone technology conquering labor in the same way that, that in the John Gast image, we had the railroad conquering the, what be, would become the American West. We have the drone scout conquering labor. There are no people working in this video. We don't see who puts the package into the scout. We don't see who puts the scout onto the road, who picks up the scout afterwards. The only human being who's featured here is a consumer. She is in fact doing a little bit of labor for Amazon, but that's like a, that's maybe a separate issue we could talk about later, but she's, she's pictured as a consumer, right? So this is also part of that same story of what the future, what the bright future should look like. And in this case, it's not so much a future that doesn't have indigenous people in it, which was the John Gass photo, but this is a future that doesn't have labor in it. So given the dominance of, of, our, of, of a, a, a historical common sense that's based on consumer values, right? I would forgive you if you thought that the solution to Japan's parcel delivery crisis was going to be something along these same lines, right? More drone technology in terms of actually delivering to homes and then um, some larger scale um, parcel delivery technology such as the Bell Yamato Autonomous Transport Pod, um, which has undergone some successful tests recently. And you can actually see, here's the Yamato Black Cat logo um, right there. Actually, though, um, the solution has been far more low tech. What's actually supporting internet commerce is the housewife cart force. So the housewife cart force is a tongue-in-cheek name for a, a process that's known formally as team distribution. And what this is, is a team of part-time parcel delivery workers meet the delivery driver. They put packages into separate rolling carts and they push with their own human bodies the rolling carts to the various houses and apartment buildings and deliver the packages. Right? So the innovation here has been more people using absolutely unmechanized technology. Let me explain how it works. So if we imagine that this is a given neighborhood, the driver shows up at 9 a.m. I should say this is the old, this is the old version. The driver shows up at 9 a.m. and makes stops at all of these red dots. At each of them, the driver has to get out of the truck, has to get the packages, and at many of them has to either take elevators up to individual apartments or stairs. When I lived in Japan, my apartment building did not have an elevator, right? So the workers are doing a lot of physical labor to move these packages around. It's a lot of stops and it's very time consuming. So it takes that driver all the way to noon to finish this route. Now let's look at it with team distribution. With team distribution, the driver stops here at nine, meets the team, they distribute the packages and then the the, the team goes out with their rolling carts and delivers to these different buildings. The driver meets the same team or another team at another building half an hour later, distributes packages, and so on and so forth. The last stops at 10.30. I imagine the driver's done around 11, right? So shaving a whole hour off of the time and also saving the driver, him or herself, a lot of solo physical labor. People call this the housewife cart, housewife cart force because the population that Yamato reached out, reached out to 
where women who lived in these apartment buildings who had a lot of family responsibilities in the early morning hours and in the evening, but time in the middle of the day that they might want to spend working, right? So these parcels are also oft sometimes delivered by people who are living in the neighborhood and know these buildings really, really well. So this is bringing me to our second big point, right? Which is that we actually need to think about innovation a little bit differently if we're going to understand human power in the age of the machine. Because if we, if we start looking around, we find a lot of stories like this, a lot of stories where the innovation has been more people and more human power rather than, rather than less. So what I want to argue in the next couple of slides is that um, the history of human power in transport, history of innovation, I should say, in transport, looks a lot like finding new ways to incorporate human power into transport technologies and transport systems. And the second one is really important, the workers themselves finding new ways to protect the humanity of their labor as they are increasingly becoming increasingly essential to these large circulatory systems. So I'll give you two examples of incorporating human power and two examples of protecting human power, and then we'll wrap up. So my first example is actually the rickshaw. We're going to go back to the rickshaw. So we had all these images of American travelers um, talking about the rickshaw as the last residue of an old Japan that was going to get demolished by the railroad. But actually, to most commentators at the time, um, the rickshaw was part of this modern transportation apparatus um, that was also symbolized by the railroad. So the rickshaw was invented in Japan in 1869, about three years before the first railroad was completed there. And you can see in this very famous woodblock print, um, which is called Railway Timetable, the rickshaw is actually front and center. And the reason for this is because the rickshaw made the railroad more useful. It made it possible to move quickly from someplace far away from the railroad to the railway station where you would get on the, rail on, on the train, go a long distance, and then get on a rickshaw when you got there and finish off your journey, right? So part of why the railroad was a successful tool for passenger transport was because there were also rickshaws and there were people pulling those rickshaws. They extended the railway network. The fact that the rickshaw was very much a part of railway networks and a part of making them function was obvious to a lot of people at the time. So this is um, a drawing of Akiha, Akiha Daisuke and the Akiha Rickshaw Company. And you can see um, next to Akiha, you've got a gentleman who's dressed in kind of a European, maybe British fashion. And you've got two gentlemen who are dressed um, to symbolize a much more um, Chinese fashion. And they're all here to talk to Akiha about how they can buy some of his rickshaws to export to the rest of Asia. So in 1901, Akiha rickshaws actually exported something on the lines of 4,000 rickshaws to Asia, primarily to Singapore and the Strait Settlements, which were areas under British control. Right? So rickshaws were actually part of the expansion of railroads. They weren't what was there before they got replaced by the railroads. They came with the railroads. So here we have a story of incorporating human power into a transport network, and that being the innovation. Now, here's another innovation that is of a, a rather different nature. And this is about how human workers themselves have innovated their bodies to work more efficiently with particular transport devices, in this case, a truck. So a lot of the trucks in Japan are small and medium-sized trucks. They don't have, they're not semi-trailers with the cab in the back. And as a result, when you need to take a nap as a truck driver, you have to do it in your seat. So to be a good truck driver, 
which is to say an efficient truck driver who gets the goods to the destination quickly, you have to learn how to do this. I could not do this, right? But this is part of the work of being a truck driver. And in fact, most of the um, commercial goods in Japan are carried by trucks rather than, rather than by trains or by airplanes. So now let's look, about, look at some innovations in transport work um, that have been around protecting the humanity of human power. Transport workers were some of the first workers to organize their labor in the late 19th century in Japan. And of those transport workers, rickshaw pullers were actually at the forefront. So here we have an example from um, the Rickshaw Pullers Friendly Association, which formed in 1882. And Miura Kamekichi, who's a rickshaw puller himself, is making the case that rickshaw pullers are also an essential part of Japanese society. And they should be seen as part of society, not as on the periphery or um, things that people that maybe we're going to get rid of when we have more trains all over the place, right? So he says, look, people with the power of money give money. People with knowledge debate political affairs. Our rickshaw puller society does not have knowledge, nor do we have the power of money. We have only the power of the sensation in our arms. Therefore, if in the future there's trouble in the country, as long as our arms are still connected, we'll beat back the guys causing the disturbance with our rickshaw pulls. I, li I like that one, right? Um, so. Here they are making the case for how they're an essential part of Japanese society. And in fact, the later founders of the socialist movement in Japan and the anarchist movement in Japan cited the Rickshaw Pullers Friendly Association as their inspiration. And the last example I'll give of innovation in human power is, of, is, from, is from the parcel delivery crisis itself, right? And this is where workers have found ways to push back on this consumer-driven logic of faster, sooner, cheaper. So in 2016, at the height of the parcel delivery crisis, two former Yamato drivers sued the company for unpaid overtime. And they won. And in fact, they won the largest unpaid overtime lawsuit in the history of Japanese labor law. The company owed these two workers and 59,000 other workers 24 billion yen, which translates to $224 million. It was huge. They found a way, right? They found a way to protect their labor. And what's particularly interesting about this case is that um, they found a way to push back on the values of consumer economy by, by demanding that they be able to be human at the job. So not only were they paid overtime, they're back overtime, but also there were reforms they, where they were guaranteed a protected lunch hour. They were not going to be expected to re-deliver packages during that time. And this whole thing gave all the parcel delivery companies in Japan the political cover to actually raise rates, raise consumer delivery rates for the first time in 27 years. So this was a huge victory for the humanity of labor. So I said that this talk was going to be about making sense of human power in the age of the machine. And really, it's about learning how to think about the future of human power by rethinking the past and the present of human power. I've argued that we have a history of transport innovation and frankly of, of human history that looks like this. Feet, horses, steam, electricity, gasoline, jets, efficiency, and automation. But we actually need to replace this one or at least pair it with one that looks like this. 
feet, 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 eyes, hands, feet, 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 right? Because this is also a history of human power in transport. And when we internalize this history, it should change how we think about human power and how we think about our relationship with transport systems as consumers, as workers, and as people with political voices. Because the reality is we feel this conflict of values every day. We are all workers and we are all consumers. And we find ourselves torn, right, between these two conflicts, between these two value systems, the values of consumer economy and the values of the humanity of our labor. So because um, this is the humanities, and I'm proud to be the first faculty member from the humanities to present in this series, I get to end with a question instead of an answer. Who powers history? And where will we go from here? Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.